Hello there and welcome into another edition of The Intersection with conversation about a variety of topics, including news, information, and lifestyles approached from a Christian worldview perspective. Well, coming up on this edition, October is Pastor and Staff Appreciation Month. You'll be hearing from George Stanky, a focus on the family who offers some perspective on the role of pastors and how congregations can affirm them. Then in light of the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation, author and commentator Eric Metaxas has some insight and information about the man who started it, Martin Luther. Plus, you'll be hearing from Jonathan Kahn of the Ministry of Hope of the World, who has located a biblical timeline of leadership that is eerily similar to what we have seen over the past several decades in America, illustrating a parallel between Israel and America and sending a message about judgment and repentance. And on this edition of The Intersection, with some insight into how Christians can approach and discuss current issues biblically, and with civility, it's Bruce Ashford of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Finally, it's Christian commentator Michael Austin, spokesperson for Christian History Magazine, discussing content from the most recent edition, which is related to prison, including people of faith spending time there in prison, as well as doing ministry. You'll be hearing some comments from our conversation. This is the intersection of production of The Meeting House. I'm Bob Crittenden. Well, George Stanky is an ordained minister and a pastoral counselor for Focus on the Family. In a recent conversation, he shared some perspective about the role of pastors and our church leaders and how congregations can affirm them. From that conversation, this is George Stanky. We recognize that the pastor cares for so many families. So if we can keep the pastor and his family encouraged, they in turn can encourage those that they serve. So realistically, by reaching one family, we might actually be reaching hundreds. Well, let's talk about the life of a pastor. We recognize that every pastor's life is different. There are unique challenges to various congregations, You touched on it earlier, and I wanted you to elaborate just a bit more. When you look at some of the challenges that pastors face, what would you say would be some of the dominant ones? I think the dominant one would be feelings of isolation. You know, the person who is in ministry, they have the same problems as those that they minister to. There's family stress, work-related stress, financial issues, but who Who do they go to? Who can they actually talk to about their situation? You know, Bob and Mary, they're struggling in the Christian community, and they can go to their pastor to talk. But who does the pastor go to? And so many, many people in ministry deal with feelings of isolation. Um, And then again, added to that, just being on 24-7 call where you almost feel guilty for taking time alone because there are so many needs in the body. Hmm. Well, and and it's interesting when you look at pastors that preach every week, and, and perhaps there are, are times when they're doing pastoral care, maybe hospital visits or visiting or talking with congregation members in their homes, and then, of course, preaching, some of them preaching to dozens, others preaching to hundreds, maybe some even thousands. You have churches of a variety of different sizes. This whole issue of isolation, I think it's important that we don't take that for granted, because you think, well, a pastor is, well, 
connecting with people all the time, whether it be behind the pulpit or through mm-hmm. some sort of personal ministry. But as you state, there are those those moments or even seasons, I would imagine, of isolation. Explain kind of how that works a little bit more. Yeah, it's true. Well, adding, adding to that, you have about 21% of current pastors and 49% of former pastors who believe that there are unrealistic expectations being placed on them and on their families. And so again, those unrealistic expectations, you know, our children have to be perfect. Our kids can't be normal kids like Bob and Mary's. You know, they're living in a fishbowl. So besides the workload, just this constant scrutiny. Is my life adding up? Is my wife, are my children, are we meeting the expectations, many of which are unspoken until a line is crossed and then, oh my goodness, all kinds of problems arise. So just the pressures are terrible. So, and and for those that may be facing that, that are listening today, that are in pastoral ministry, maybe they're on a church staff, in a pastoral position, or maybe even just in a, a staff position on the staff where they're actually doing ministry, they're part of the ministry team and such, but they're feeling this this pressure and they're wondering, well, who can I talk to about this? What would you advise that person as far as finding, as we might say, a, a pastor to the pastors? Absolutely. You're so spot on. We would encourage them. We have a toll-free number that is dedicated to people in ministry. It is 844-427-7867. The calls are confidential. Those calls would be taken by someone like myself that has experience in the pastorate. We've been in the trenches. We've We've been where they are, experienced personally the problems and the difficulties, and we would be honored, absolutely honored, to receive any of those calls. Mm. George Stanky here on The Intersection. Learn more through FocusOnTheFamily.com or go to ThrivingPastor.com, which is a Focus on the Family website. This is The Intersection Podcast with Eric Metaxas, an author and commentator who is regularly heard on the Breakpoint Commentary from the Colson Center. He's written a new biography called Martin Luther, The Man Who Rediscovered God and Changed the World, a book which has definite significance in light of the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. With some insight into the life of Luther, here is Eric Metaxas. For 15 centuries, um, there was uh, the church. The church had an Eastern branch called Eastern Orthodoxy, uh, you know, in Constantinople was the center. The Western branch was in Rome. Uh, we know that as the Roman Catholic Church. That was it. That was Christianity for 15 centuries. And Martin Luther was a very serious, faithful monk. Uh, he was not some hothead rebel. He was really a, a, somebody obsessed with God, obsessed with serving God. And in the midst of his obsession with serving God, he discovered a few things that were troubling, and in good conscience, this is what people need to know, he wanted to bring these things to the attention of of the church leaders. He was sure that they would thank him, that he was doing God's work by letting them know, because the faithful 
uh, we're, we're really losing respect for the church because some corruption and this and that. And he said, God uh, forces me uh, to, to bring this up, and who would I be if I, if I ignored what God would want me to do? So he tried to bring this to the attention of the powers that be, starting exactly 500 years ago, a famous moment where he nailed the 95 theses to the door of the church, uh, the Castle Church in Wittenberg. It's a, you know, a major moment in the history of the world, like Columbus planting the flag in the New World. or It's just a gigantic moment, but it all kind of backfired. Um, the, the powers that be did not receive him well, and it just kind of got confused. Sometimes things get out of hand. I mean, that's, that's the story that I tell, that it never needed to go in this direction. But it ended up that he was uh, pushed out of the church, and then he proudly declared that I don't want anything to do with the church. The church is Antichrist. And it became just an insane moment where where – the whole world changed because he effectively opened the door to the modern world, to the idea that there could be other churches. And, and by the way, not just one other church called the Protestant church, but, you know, thousands of breakaway denominations. So there's a downside, but there's also a huge upside. And when I realized how big it was, the influence that this mm. man had, that the world in which I live is a direct result of what he did that day 500 years ago uh, and what he did in, in the subsequent years, I really uh, think people need to understand that this is, without any question, one of the most influential uh, human beings in the history of the world with no uh, apology for sounding hyperbolical because it is, in fact, not hyperbolical. Just to be clear, he didn't start out wanting to reform. He was just trying to be helpful. Okay. He ended up getting sucked into this you know, battle uh, for the soul of the church, so to speak, uh, and and but he really he we have to understand that. Um, by the way, this story is not an anti-Catholic story. I, uh, Eric Metaxas, am not a Catholic, but this book is not about bashing Catholics or bashing the Catholic Church. This is a story of a moment in church history where everyone acknowledges that the corruption was horrific. There were tons of faithful Catholics who saw what was happening, who tried to do something about it. At the top of the list was this guy named Martin Luther. And he happened to kind of get sucked into the forefront of this because he, the, the whole thing started, if people want to know, he saw that there was this thing called indulgences where people would pay some money and the church would kind of give them a certificate, kind of like a get out of jail free card. It really started out rather innocently, right? That, you know, you, you, let's say you say, um, uh, you know, I've sinned in this way, in this way. How can I make it up to the church? And they'd say, well, why don't you give some money uh, for the building of St. Peter's or for the building of this thing? Or, you know, give something to the church, you know. And people say, oh, that's, you know, it's a great idea. There's nothing crazy about that. But it got way out of hand. Uh, church corruption got involved. Greed got involved. And Luther saw that this was so harmful to the faithful, to the people who would come to his confessional and say, you know, Father, I have this uh, indulgence certificate here. He thought, this is a scandal. We need to have a debate about this. We, when I say debate, I mean literally he was a theologian, and he said in our uh, place here, Wittenberg University, we need to have a debate on the subject of indulgences. And if we theologians debate this, of course the truth will come out, and of course the church will change. Well, that didn't happen. He, puts the, he posts on the door these 95 theses, these points about indulgences to kind of kick off this debate, 
and all it did was kick off a, a firestorm in the church. People began attacking him, some people defended him, and it just led to a war of ideas such as the world, I think, has never seen. Eric Metaxas here on The Intersection. Learn more through the website ericmetaxas, M-E-T-A-X-A-S, dot com. The Intersection continues now with Jonathan Kahn. He leads the Ministry of Hope of the World. In a recent conversation, he discussed with me his most recent book called The Paradigm, the ancient blueprint that holds the mystery of our times, tracing a parallel between a timeline during biblical times that is strikingly similar to a leadership timeline during recent years in America. Here now from that conversation is Jonathan Kahn. Bill Clinton came on the stage, the national stage, in 1979 when he was elected governor of Arkansas. Then it, that his time on the stage lasted all the way to 2001 at, at the end of his presidency. That is a period of 22 years, 22 years of Bill Clinton. You open up the Bible to the prototype, to Ahab, and it will say, it will read, Ahab, son of Omri, reigned in Samaria for a period of 22 years. Bill Clinton will follow the prototype down to the years, and every single leader will follow that. And the paradigm, it speaks of this ancient, I'm just going quick, Bob, because I want to get some stuff in for you. Sure, but sure. The paradigm will speak of the, a scandal takes place in the, in the reign of Ahab. By the way, this is going to take us all the way up to Donald Trump. But the, 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 a scandal takes place, and it takes place, it's, it's actually, I won't go through the details, it's in the book, but it's linked to the tribe of Levi. And, and Ahab is going to have a fall that's going to be linked to the tribe of Levi. Now, could it possibly be that there'd be a scandal in, um, in, in American history that would be linked to the tribe of Levi? Well, well there's, scandal comes in the Clinton years, and of course it's the Lewinsky scandal, he's impeached for it. But here's the thing, the name Levi, from Levi you get the word Levin, from Levin you get Lewin, from Lewin you get Lewinsky, the Lewinsky scandal, that is named after the tribe of Levi. And the scandal in the paradigm takes place in the 19th year of King Ahab. Well, 19 years from Bill Clinton's rise on the national stage, 1979, takes you to 1998, actually takes you to January 1998, it's the exact time that the scandal is broken, is exposed to the world. But it's going to get even more, more eerie than that, because he, you got to, I got this is like, this is like mind-boggling what I'm about to say, because there, there's a chapter in the paradigm called The Day, and if you take that, that scandal, when, when Ahab goes to take this vineyard, that's where the scandal is, he, he kills a man to take a vineyard, he finds a surprise, finds Elijah the prophet in the vineyard, and Elijah gives him a, a prophecy of judgment. Well, Ahab repents, and so God says, you know, I'm going to delay the judgment, and then you see there's a period of three years from the time that Ahab repents, three years until, until calamity comes to the nation. Well, did Bill Clinton ever repent over the scandal? The answer is he did, but it happened much later. It happened at a White House gathering, and he administers, and he says, this is my repentance. He repented. And so if you take that date, of the, add the three years of the paradigm, Will it take you to any day that's significant? Because in the paradigm, it's a day of calamity. It, it leads you three years from the king's re- from from Clinton's repentance. Will leads you to the date September 11th, 2001, the day of calamity. In fact, it's so it's so mind-boggling. This when he when Clinton repented, it was in the morning. 
to, uh, three years later, it means it pinpoints the morning of 9-11 will come the calamity. The White House event began at 8.30 in the morning. Three years later, it pinpoints 8.30 is the hour that 9-11 begins. The White House event ends at 10.30. 9-11 ends with a fall of the North Tower at 10.29, and then it comes. What do you sense is really, as we might say, the message behind the paradigm for us today? Great question. Okay, a few things. One, one is that it's God. It looks like everything's been looking like it's out of control. God, this is telling you, listen, God is in control. He's on the throne, and not everything that's happening. It's not only there. It's all, not only in this, but even down to the dates, to the intricate details. That's how much God is in control. If He's in control of of everything in America, then He's in control of your life. Number one. Number two. What it's saying is that we are at a, the paradigm reveals where we are right now, and where we are right now is a very critical period, because when what Jehu did is he he, he provided a window. It's not about Jehu. It's not about Donald Trump. It's not the answer. But he provided a window for the people of God that they still had the freedom. They still there was still an opening to go full blast for God. Well, that's where we are right now. America is standing at the crossroads. We've got a window, and the answer is not politics. The answer is revival. And, and not only that. But the paradigm is actually going to intersect with the harbingers, which is a warning of judgment. If we don't have revival, we are heading for judgment. The, the, the harbingers are still kicking in. So it is crucial that right now that not only we, we fervently pray for revival, work for revival, minister for revival, and, and actually live in revival, because if we do that, the revival will start now. The eyes of God, what they're saying, is searching the entire earth, looking for the one. It'll be completely his, and he'll lift that one up. So know this, above all things, God is on the throne. He's amazing. He's incredible. And he's on the throne of your life, and put him on the throne. And there is a paradigm or a plan for your life. You need to find it. Jonathan Kahn here on The Intersection. You can find out more about the book by going to theparadigmmystery.com. Paradigm is spelled P-A-R-A-D-I-G-M. The Hope of the World website is hopeoftheworld.org. This is The Intersection Podcast. It's a weekly production of The Meeting House. You can learn more by visiting the website meetinghouseonline.info. There you'll find a link to the download center marked Meeting House On Demand, through which you could listen to or download full conversations with recent guests featured here on The Intersection Podcast. Also through that site, you can subscribe to The Intersection and have it delivered to your podcast receiving software, including iTunes, on a weekly basis. Two blogs are accessible. One is The Three, with three stories of relevance to the Christian community. The other is The Front Room, with devotional thoughts and commentary from The Meeting House program. You can also follow me on Twitter and access The Meeting House Facebook page. You can also get connected to video content. Again, that website address is meetinghouseonline.info. Well, continuing now with this edition of the Intersection Podcast, it's Bruce Ashford, Provost and Professor of Theology and Culture at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary and co-author of the book, One Nation Under God, A Christian Hope for American Politics. In our conversation, he discussed how to talk about various issues biblically, but doing so in a civil manner. From that conversation, this is Bruce Ashford. We give a couple of uh, historical exemplars. Um, we give, uh, uh, you know, of course, uh, Martin Luther King Jr., uh, but then John Perkins, somebody that most people don't know about. Um, we give case studies and we show people um, engaging in, for example, nonviolent protests instead of violent protests. So there's a historical aspect. But there's also uh, a biblical reasoning aspect where we go in and we give biblical foundations for valuing people of different ethnic heritage, skin color, and so forth. 
And we try to show, um, you know, most of my audience are conservatives. So I speak directly to conservatives, that conservatives are going to have to find a better path toward overcoming racism. And whenever we have racial injustice and disunity, we can't always shift the blame and point fingers at all the bad people on the other side of the aisle, which is really our tendency, I think. Maybe not, maybe not your listeners, but many, many conservatives do it. And I think this is a moment where white conservatives can stand there in the moment and show a better way. And I hope that's something we can do. I hope we can call out people who claim to be conservative and Christian, who are racist, white supremacist, white nationalist, and that we can call them out without merely shifting the blame to problematic movements on the other side of the aisle, such as Antifa. Does that make sense? Yes, yes. Give us some examples of other issues that you also cover in this book, One Nation Under God. Oh, yeah, great. Thank you. So we, we deal with uh, life and death issues that includes not only abortion, but physician-assisted suicide, euthanasia. We deal with marriage and sexuality and how to broach conversations about um, uh, same-sex marriage. Uh, we deal with economics and wealth and give a sort of a biblical approach to money. And then I uh, give an argument for why I'm a small government guy and why I think a relatively unregulated free market is the, the best way forward. We, d- we talk about the environment, talk about racial diversity and race relations, immigrants and immigration reform, and then finally, war and peace. You know, should Christians be pacifists? I answer no. I think we should have peaceful dispositions, but in a fallen world, we shouldn't. Should we be crusaders? No. And so the middle path, I think, is just war. We should uh, wage war only when we need to, only when it's just, when it's a matter of justice. So these are the topics we address. And uh, I think they've got a sale on the books right now if you go to Amazon.com. It's a small book, uh, you know, uh, very readable, a gift you could give to your parents or, or uh, your children or a friend. So whether it's talking with a brother or sister in the Lord or talking with someone that doesn't know Christ, what would you see as maybe a key that someone can implement as far as really reaching a level of understanding even when they disagree about the content of various issues? I was a missionary for a while, and um, I like to take principles that I learned as a missionary and import them into the political realm. As a, when a missionary goes into a people group in another nation, goes in with a posture of humility, willing to learn, learns the language, learns the worldview, gets to know people, builds relationship with them, and then finds some common ground and works from that common ground, and works to woo them in, to, to want to read the scriptures and to hear a biblical perspective. And so I think the problem is we've lost that point of view in the United States because we... Uh, Instead of taking a missionary approach, we reprimand. We're, we're, we, we, we tend to be angry and to, to yell at people who don't, we don't agree with or and to reprimand them and to cast them as thoroughly morally reprehensible people. And there's a disjunct there. No Christian denomination is going to send missionaries to do that. But then for some reason, we're okay being missionaries to our own nation with, with a kind of a caustic or ugly demeanor or posture. Mm-hmm. So I think just take the, take the mindset of a missionary. If you're going to another nation with 20 million people who didn't believe in Christ, uh, what would you do? You'd learn their language. You'd listen. You'd build some friendships, and you'd work to persuade. So that, those are some principles, I think. Bruce Ashford here on The Intersection. His website address is bruceashford.net. 
Finally, on this edition of the Intersection Podcast, it's Christian commentator Michael Austin, spokesperson for Christian History Magazine, a publication of Christian History Institute. In our conversation, he describes some of the content from the most recent edition entitled Captive Faith, Prison as a Parish. Here now from that conversation is Michael Austin. Well, first of all, um, there are a couple of articles that go way back to the very beginnings of the Christian life and um, and cover folks uh, such as Ignatius of, uh, of Antioch uh, and his time in prison. He was a disciple um, of John. And um, so we're, we're talking about, uh, you know, a, a hundred years after our Savior was walking the earth, uh, Christians were being thrown into prison. And so uh, we can't even imagine conditions of prisons in those days. Um, actually, at that time, which is covered in, in a very interesting article uh, titled uh, Prison as a Parish, Christian Inmates, um, prisons at that time were pretty much uh, not an institution of punishment so much as a holding place for people who were charged with something and were waiting for trial or waiting for sentencing. Um, justice was carried out uh, very quickly, and uh, rarely were people, you know, incarcerated for petty crimes. They would be somehow uh, punished on the spot, or they would be uh, killed, they would be maimed, they would be beaten. But uh, prison was something, uh, was, a, was in, the, in the beginning an institution basically waiting for trial. Um, so that that's fascinating and uh in that in that article there are a number of stories of uh modern individuals who were in prison camp for instance uh, during uh wartime um one of them being the, the famous uh Louis Zapparini who was captured in the second world war um came to Christ and became a great evangelist by the way, there's a, a number of stories of Christians who, because they were incarcerated, uh, came out of that situation under greater conviction, um, had experienced either salvation within the walls of the prison or a deepening of faith that changed their life. And so that's, that's one primary way that Christians have responded to, uh, to prison. And, of course, there are uh, a couple of articles on medieval times when uh, prison and punishment became the order of the day. And uh, we're we're familiar, having come off the series of uh, issues on the Reformation, that that was a period where uh, people were were tortured, they were uh, burned at the stake, they were killed uh, for their belief and also for such things as reading the Bible, <laughs> and um, and so prison and and the um, justice system uh, are are very carefully and and very sensitively covered uh, during that period, and then later, um, I mean, there's just so many so many articles in so many periods. Uh, one of one of the articles uh, covers it's it's titled "Paradoxes of Prison." Uh, it's it covers modern individuals such as Chuck Colson, who was convicted of uh, political crimes, and um, 
uh, or crimes, uh, you know, related to his, his uh, political position in, in Washington, D.C., came out of that um, renewed and, and um, began a very uh, important and, and fruitful prison ministry as a result. So the, the, the issue is filled with um, uh, articles from a very, very different, uh, unusual perspectives, telling the story over the last 2,000 years of the impact of, uh, of prison and incarceration on Christian lives, and also what Christians have done uh, to reform uh, the prisons, to make them a more humane uh, environment, and to re- rehabilitate uh, prisoners. Not always successful, but certainly a, a noble uh, undertaking. Michael Austin, on behalf of Christian History Magazine, here on the Intersection Podcast. You can learn more and view the online version at ChristianHistoryMagazine.org. Well, we are nearing the end of this edition of the Intersection Podcast, a weekly production of The Meeting House. Again, that website address is meetinghouseonline.info. You'll find a link to the Media Center. Also, you can get subscribed to the Intersection Podcast. Two blogs are accessible. You can also follow me on Twitter and access the Meeting House Facebook page. You can also get connected to video content. Again, that website address is meetinghouseonline.info. Thanks for joining me for this edition of the Intersection Podcast. I'm Bob Crittenden.